0: Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangeley. With me as always, my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris DeMuth. It is Wednesday, October 12th. And today we're going to start with a bit of discussion on Google's acquisition of YouTube in honor of its 10-year anniversary. And then we're going to turn to Chris's article of the week. Uh, so Chris, some background, Google buying YouTube, uh, you know, today Google announced the acquisition of FameBit, which is a company that helps YouTube video creators and brands who are looking to partner up to advertise and monetize their Uh, YouTube videos. Uh, So with that in mind, we thought we'd uh, take the opportunity to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of Google buying YouTube this week. Uh, That was a $1.65 billion acquisition. It was by far, at the time, uh, Google's biggest acquisition ever. I believe the year before, they had done something like... 15 acquisitions in total for 150 million. So it just blew 150 million in total. So it just blew every acquisition away they'd done. And at the time, uh, it's kind of funny because Google was a little bit mocked for this. You know, analysts, uh, there was a lot of concern over Google acquiring a 1.5 year old startup with basically no revenue at that time. Uh, you know, nobody'd ever seen someone get a company grow this big, this quick, make this much money. Mark Cuban said Google was crazy to take on YouTube's legal liabilities because, uh, you know, YouTube, if someone was uploading like an SNL video that YouTube didn't have the right for, uh, people were very concerned that YouTube themselves was legally liable for that. And uh, even Google's chair at the time, Eric Schmidt, he said in an interview later, he was like, look, We thought they were worth maybe six or seven hundred million, and we were willing to pay a one billion dollar premium just to get them and make sure no one else could get in on that process uh now the acquisition and today the acquisition is kind of regarded as one of the greatest acquisitions of all time uh youtube's probably worth, they're worth at least 50 billion i've seen analysts say 70 billion maybe it's 100 billion but i mean this is a massive massive home run for them uh so chris let's discuss it what do you think about youtube's uh acquisition what do you think about the youtube acquisition let's talk about all of it you know i, I sometimes
1: uh, joke or say that uh Uh, the short for value investing is investing and investing is just about uh, looking at the value on financial metrics and underpaying for what it's worth that day. But boy, there's other things that can work really well. I mean, I would have said at the time, this was probably did say at the time, this was speculative, risky, certainly future oriented, and they were buying this hot, big new uh, uh, product, but boy, did it work well. I think my big takeaway from it is that sometimes scale allows you to do things that are actually mm-hmm. very rational uh, at lots and lots of different probabilities, right? Like the arithmetic says, you should be able to do kind of low probability payoffs uh, the way Gates Foundation does it philanthropically. You uh, uh, YouTube could be an example of Google doing it uh, for profit. And, you know, a $1.65 billion deal is a big deal. Uh, and if you think that there 's a decent chance that you 're overpaying or that it fails it 's something you can 't do if you 're worth two or three or four billion and so having these huge companies like Google lets them really have a kind of skunk works that uh, that can pay off
0: yeah so I, look I think there's a couple things in there look we you mentioned the big size and Google had deep pockets, so mm-hmm. they were one of the only people who could buy them. I think people had thought Microsoft might have some interest, but Google paid up and they got it. Uh, there was some hair on, on YouTube, mm-hmm. right? They had the legal liabilities. And Google was both able to buy them at maybe a discount to what they were ultimately worth because of those legal liabilities and because Google had some history uh, Working with those legal liability working through those legal liabilities with uh, their search engines legal issues mm-hmm. uh, and then you know I think it shows the advantage of flexibility if you read quotes from YouTube's founder at the time he said look Google's gonna let us be a standalone company and they're going to help us with uh, they're gonna let us be standalone within Google and they're gonna help us with the legal thing so cultural fit legal fit all of those checked out and Google was able to get what turned out to be a very valuable property I think all those worked well you mentioned uh, look if you looked at the financials this made no sense But I think this was Google was very early in realizing when you've got these things that scale massively quickly, all that's important is buying the thing that has the most scale and has the scale advantages. Uh, A couple years later, Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars. And again, they were widely decried. People were saying Instagram's been around for a year. They have 33 employees and no revenue. How can someone pay a billion dollars? Now Instagram's worth $30 billion. So these things that are first movers and have scale, Uh, They turn out to be massive home runs. Now, not all of them do. You know, you think of Yahoo's acquisition of Tumblr. We've talked about Yahoo a lot before in the past. That was basically lighting money on fire. But when these things work, they work big, they're home runs, and you're talking tens of billions of dollars.
1: I think I think Google gets a lot of credit for not screwing it up because yeah they paid 1.65 billion yeah it could be worth 50 or 70 but it's not clear it would be worth 50 or 70 billions today outside of Google and it's not clear that it'd be worth that with a buyer that have come in and kind of micromanage and screw up the entrepreneurial culture there so uh, yeah no I think it's uh, it's been amazing um, the other aspect of it that I've been interested in you know we've looked at uh, just today was it that they had a new acquisition announced on uh, uh helping connect uh advertisers to mm-hmm. to the, uh, the, yep. the uh, YouTube uh, stars it's amazing how much money individuals are making on YouTube including like young people uh with fairly vacuous content making incredible amounts of money each year on this.
0: Yeah, look, it's another example of the scale thing, right? I think you said PewDiePie, who's the YouTube... I believe he's the most watched person Mm -hmm. on YouTube. He's making $12 million a year playing video games and swearing a lot on YouTube. But it it shows if you make something, people can watch it for free. Mm -hmm. Uh, You make something and people are interested in it. It scales really quickly and you can make a whole bunch of money off of it. And
1: and you don't have to have strong theories ahead of time. I, I never would guess... I would, I, my, my, my introductory guess would be uh, zero people would want to watch somebody else play a video game and swearing. Uh, apparently 40 million people are highly, highly uh, loyal to uh, that one individual, for example.
0: You know, th- that's been my debate with some friends. Like, I have no desire to watch someone play video games. But some people have no desire to watch other people play sports. Right? Right. like what's mm-hmm. really the difference between watching someone play sports and watching someone play video game? With video game, you actually get like more content because the person can talk you mm-hmm. through it and say what they're doing. So just because I'm not interested and you're not interested, you never want to put like your own interest on it's a huge world, and YouTube lets you hit every person who might be interested in that content. Mm -hmm. There are two other things I want to dive in here. Uh, One of them is, you know I can't help but think Snapchat, the rumor is this week that they're looking to IPO early next week, Mm -hmm. and you look at them looking to IPO, uh, the rumor valuation is $25 billion plus, and you're seeing a lot of consternation among people who are saying, uh this year I believe Snapchat's not even gonna do a billion dollars of revenue. I, I think they're not gonna do that till eighteen or seventeen or eighteen. And you're seeing people saying, 25 billion for a company that's not even doing a billion in revenue. You know, th- this is the highest uh, priced multiple of all time for an IPO. And when I look at a Snapchat or an Instagram, it makes me wonder: like, you know, does that really matter? Snapchat has such a dominant hold on so many young people; they spend so much time interacting at it. I think monetization will come mm-hmm. if you have that network effect and that domination on people. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. And I, and I think if you look at the really dominant. Um, franchises in tech, it's been people who are willing just to push off monetization until yep. late. I mean, I think that that was hugely important, and Facebook, hugely important, yep. and Google. And and if you look at a lot of their focus, uh, uh, it, it really was on kind of doing that well, but doing it last. Yep. And I think in Snapchat, it should be and probably
0: will be the same order of operations. One of the things with, I think it was in the Plex, the Google book, one of the things they make clear is they were like, We will be able to monetize YouTube at some point. But, you know, if you load that – now YouTube has a 30-second or 15-second ad before almost every video. If you put that in in 2006 or 2007, someone can displace them. You've Mm got to wait until you've got all the videos and everyone goes to you. The last little piece I wanted to talk on it, you know, we talked about how analysts and pundits question this deal – And this deal, given the legal issues and the price, the Facebook, Instagram deal, given the price Mm -hmm. and the shortness. And we've talked about it a little bit before, but you're investing in these visionary companies and their visionary leaders. Sometimes you just kind of have to give them the rope to go do deals, even if you question it. And it kind of makes me think of the Tesla, Solar City Elon Musk deal we've talked about, where Elon Musk keeps saying... Look, there's huge synergies. This is my gap to the future. You guys just don't see it. Now, in this case, there are a lot of conflicts of interests here, but I do think it's you know he is that visionary. And questioning this is a could be akin to questioning the Google YouTube deal. I don't know no, if you understand I, I think anything.
1: that's fair. If you look at the history of invention and and IP, it's a fairly solitary act. Uh, There's helpers and there's coordination, uh, but uh, it's typically uh, one individual who, who takes these huge strides and you wouldn't want to be kind of doling out resources slowly to a Thomas Edison, or to a Mozart, yeah. you know, telling them, or you know, how much paint a Leonardo da Vinci could have, uh, and, uh, and and some of these individuals are really inventing a company and inventing a part of an industry that wasn't there before. And uh, so you can, uh, they might screw it up, but you also can be uh, weary about screwing up, uh, kind of micromanaging them. Maybe maybe Elon Musk uh, deserves that treatment. Um, uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah, the last one I'll say is you know uh, Buffett even when he bought BNSF his railroad uh, people were saying this is a capital intensive business you're buying it at 18 times uh, EBITDA or EBIT or something like Buffett's lost his mind he's gone crazy what's happening uh, that was in 2010. And the acquisition has turned out to be a huge home run. And I know there were shareholders who were selling because they thought Buffett had lost it and he was kind of straying from what had made him a great investor. So, again, if you're invested in one of these guys for a visionary and that's part of the reason you're invested, I think you really need something to break and disprove that thesis for you to sell and go away. Anyway, Mm -hmm. you want to wrap this one up and we'll go to your article of the week? Yes. Yeah, so, Chris, your article of the week is from Hollywood uh, Reporter. It's called panic anxiety sparks rush to build luxury bunkers for la super rich uh i think the article's title might give away what it's talking about but i'll let you go ahead and explain the article and then we'll discuss it
1: oh i like every bit of this first of all i like that the uh, la super rich spend all of their lives in panic and anxiety (laughs) so right off the bat there i mean they're really people who are more miserable being rich than if they just burned all their money (laughs) or gave it all away that they kind of have this uh and typically heirs too i would say maybe people are a little more comfortable if the they earned it, uh, or, or even uh, perhaps if people earned it in ways that doesn't really feel like work, you know, if you're kind of a Hollywood starlet, you know, this, this kind of huge panic and anxiety over this problem. Uh, but then secondly, everything has been turned into a luxury good. I mean, uh, you know, when I, when I was a kid, you could have maybe a luxury car or a luxury boat, certainly. Uh, but there weren't that many things that had the uh, that, that, that had uh, the description of luxury. Mm-hmm. Now everything does. There's luxury ice cubes, uh, luxury everything, and so now there are apparently luxury bomb shelters. Yeah,
0: and you know, I think if I think if you read this article, it, it starts off and it talks about you know you're getting luxury bunkers and it's for the rich who are worried about panic. So you think it's like a safety thing, and somebody mm-hmm. even says in it. Look, if you've got a couple billion dollars, what's the harm in spending a million dollars to have a, a safety bunker mm. under your house in the case of the end of the world? Which I can understand that uh, that's all fine. But as you read through the article, it becomes more and more clear this is about like having something that's luxury and living a fantasy. Like they talk at the end of the article about everybody's got their own favorite door from a favorite yeah. door or movie from an entrance that they want. Or they show pictures, and my personal favorite picture is there's a picture of someone's gym that has like six or eight treadmills in it. And if it's the end of the world. Why does your personal luxury bunker need six or eight treadmills in there? I mean, are you going to have... 400 people camped out down there with you or what's the plan
1: i think the fun doors really gives away a lot of it that this is uh this is for a bit of fun i think there's at least some people who are hiding out from their wives or spouses <laughs> and their children because uh, i thought about this and the thing is that i was thinking about is how do i build this without letting any of my immediate family members <laughs> and, and know
0: you if you call it a man cave you get in trouble but if you call right. it your luxury safety bunker from a nuclear fallout you can go ahead and build so, that so- you're just being
1: You know, in in this era of kind of a certain amount of uh, skepticism towards elites, you know, the political elites have bunkers for World War III, and now the economic elites will too. This is going to be a very obnoxious group of people who are going to survive. (laughs) It's basically going to be cockroaches, some bacteria in deep sea hot vents, and the super-rich uh, panic and anxiety ridden starlets in LA, which if they have a lot of panic and anxiety now, if they actually have to head to those bunkers and <laughs> use them, then they're really going to have a lot of anxiety.
0: Did you, uh, did you have a favorite secret entrance to get into a bunker? What would your secret entrance for a bunker be? Well,
1: I can't tell you, of course, because <laughs> then you're
0: going to be, I'm going to have to be beating you
1: off if you, uh, comes to it. no, I'd actually, I would say, um, I will give you space in mind. So I'm not going to say on the recording, but off the air, I will say certainly what it would be. Um, but I did like the uh, I did like the phone booth Dude, one. That was my, the, favorite. you know, maybe so, you could
0: even get yeah. like a British one, the yeah. like kind of the Rot Island. Would be so, cleanness. just so our, our listeners who haven't read the article yet know, there is a there's a phone booth where you go in, and if you put in a certain phone number, the back of the phone yeah. booth will enter. And uh, open and you can enter your luxury bunker. The only issue there is if you have a phone booth in your house, it's probably a dead giveaway that there's some secret check to the phone booth. So I did like that one, though. I,
1: I don't want to apply ahead of time that I will reject uh, uh, entry of all of our listeners. I just didn't want to kind of have it just automatically. Yeah. everybody
0: Our, our listeners are, have probably listened to the podcast enough that they know if, if they sponsor the luxury bunker in some way, <laughs> shape, or form, they can probably get uh, yes. get access to the luxury bunker.
1: I, 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 I have one little thing that I wanted to add to the uh, kind of end of the world apocalypse uh, uh, conversation which is a, uh, a friend and competitor at a Hedge Fund uh, amongst the uh, preparedness things that they had is they were looking at bioterrorism and oh, yeah, 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 suits uh, for everybody but th- this guy does like thinking probabilistically about risk but he's also frugal uh, and so he looked at the price of these really good suits and he realized oh my gosh that's going to be too much so he got about half the staff the really good kind of high quality bioterror suits you know you're really going to survive this and then he felt bad he wasn't going to leave everybody out, so he kind of got the really low end, kind of just cheap, but they look about the same. And so for the next year, what the big joke was in uh, investment committee meetings is kind of who was right on the bubble. You know, if you were about the kind of right in the middle uh, and uh, you made some really good call, you got upgraded to the good suit. uh, But if one of your ideas blew up, you were back down to the cheap suit. I like to imagine
0: you could just uh, know your role in the organization by every day you could come in and like, one day you're like, oh, I've got a good one. The next one, it's just a little tiny face mask that you see (laughs) Taurus and Times Square wearing so um, yeah anyway I I think that's all the time we have for today so why don't we wrap it it up here if that's okay with you Chris very good okay so that's all the time we have for today just a quick reminder if you have any feedback for us please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelicapital.com Chris the only things we really talked about today were were Google I don't think Google and Berkshire you're you're long a little, little Berkshire yeah so I think we mentioned that for a second those are disclosures and we'll try to talk to you guys again on Friday